Good morning. I hope you have Luke chapter 24 open there in front of you. And you'll see in verse 11 these words, it seemed to them like nonsense. Well, of course it did. I mean, everybody knows that dead people don't come to life and walk around, maybe in zombie movies, but not in real life. And especially somebody who, like Jesus, had been slashed and lacerated by a Roman flogging and then nailed and hung from a cross till he died of blood loss and asphyxiation and thirst, and then had a spear shoved through his side into his vital organs, and then he was wrapped tightly in linen bandages and laid out on a slab in a cold, dark cave. I mean, nobody was more dead than the crucified Jesus. And you're, you're telling me that he rose from that dead and is alive again? What sort of fools do you take us for? So are Christians just gullible fools for believing in the resurrection? Well, of course, it's nearly Easter time again in a few weeks now, and another Easter, more Easter eggs and Easter bunnies in the shops, just another public holiday for everybody, you know, Christmas in the winter, Easter in the spring, breaks the year up quite nicely. And you get used to it, don't you, year after year. And you can so easily lose this utterly amazing surprise of it all. So that's why we're spending these few weeks before Easter looking again at this incredible account in Luke chapter 24. And I mean incredible in its literal sense of unbelievable, because it was exactly that to those who first heard about it. They did not believe the women, it says in verse 11, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. So, I don't know about you, maybe you find it hard to believe in the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Well, so did they from the very beginning, and so have people ever since. Which, of course, is why people try to explain it in all sorts of other ways. Some ways that don't really make much sense. I mean, like, for example, that, well, he didn't really die. He just sort of swooned on the cross. And then he revived in the cold of the tomb and unwrapped himself and just walked out. <laughs> yeah, right. Or that the disciples stole the body. That's one of the oldest ones. But the most popular one around these days is the kind of psychological, spiritual explanation which is that these stories of the resurrection were all the product of the disciples' love for Jesus and their imagination that somehow Jesus was still living on in their hearts. He was present with them in spirit, so to speak. And that sort of wishful thinking eventually produced the stories that he was actually alive again. So these resurrection stories in the Bible are just myths that were made up later to express a spiritual conviction, not the eyewitness testimony of those who were actually there at the time and saw it. So will that do as a way of explaining this belief that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, not according to Luke. Because here you are, we see, you see, in this last chapter of Luke's gospel, chapter 24, and Luke tells us at the very beginning of his book, in chapter 1, that he's writing to someone called Theophilus. Precisely, he says, so that you, you Theophilus, may know the certainty of the things you have been taught, which would have included, of course, the resurrection of Jesus. And Theophilus would have found that as hard to believe as anybody else, then or now. But Luke, you see, Luke wants him to know for a certainty that it truly happened. And so, to reassure Theophilus, Luke says that he had, quotes, 
carefully investigated everything from the beginning, and he had checked everything with, again, quotes, those who from the first were eyewitnesses. So you see, Luke 24 is just as much an eyewitness account of the resurrection of Jesus as chapter 23 is an eyewitness account of the crucifixion of Jesus. This is simply what they actually saw, even when they couldn't believe their eyes at first, as they obviously and very honestly must have told Luke. So let's look then at how Luke actually tells this story. There it is, you see, verse 1, first thing in the morning, a group of women go to the tomb, and they're identified and they're named in verse 10 as known women from Galilee. Luke names his sources. One of them actually was the wife of a public official. And they know which tomb to go to because they'd watched carefully on Friday evening back there in verse 55 of chapter 23. So they knew where it was. Just in case people might say, well, you know, these were silly women and they went to the wrong tomb, so it's no wonder they didn't find the body, which is one of the crazier explanations. And Luke says they took with them spices that they had prepared. That is, they were fully intending to anoint a corpse not hoping to find him alive after all. So they get there, and they find that the stone stone over the entrance to the tomb, which was really a kind of cave, the stone had been rolled away. Well, that was a bit odd, but not really inexplicable, because perhaps the cemetery authorities were doing a bit of housekeeping in there. But when they couldn't find, what they couldn't find was the body of Jesus, and that was very odd because they had seen exactly where it had been laid out. So there you are, can you see them, these women, wondering, where's it gone? Who's moved it? When two men in shining clothing appear, angels presumably, and pretty scary, and they make this astonishing speech there in verses 5 to 7, which begins with a startling question, why are you looking for the living one among the dead ones? Now, Our Bibles just say, seeking the living among the dead. But that first word is actually singular. And of course, it refers to Jesus himself. He is the living one. And you're not going to find him here among the dead. Because he is not here. Well, that was pretty obvious. They could see that for themselves. No, because he has been raised, raised from the dead, risen, alive. And that was far from obvious. What on earth could it mean? Don't you remember? The two angels go on. Don't you remember what he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? Which is where they'd walked and talked with Jesus all the way down to Jerusalem. So they should have remembered, in fact. Luke, as well as Matthew and Mark, all record that Jesus had told them three times, three times, that he was going to die in Jerusalem and that he would rise again on the third day. But they just couldn't take it in. They they didn't get it. And can you blame them? Here's actually the third time, as Luke records it in Luke chapter 18, where we read this, that Jesus took the twelve aside and he told them, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. And he's talking, of course, about himself. That's his name, the Son of Man. And he will be delivered over the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. But the disciples did not understand any of this. 
Its meaning was hidden from them. They just didn't know what he was talking about. That's pretty honest, don't you think? But the angels insist, they go, remember what he told you. And then Luke says, then the women, then they remembered his words in verse 8. The words of Jesus himself. And Luke, I think, certainly implies that with that remembering came realization and belief. I mean, can you see these women turning to one another? Yeah, he did say that, didn't he? He, he said that he would rise again on the third day. And this is the third day. And now he has. He's kept his word. He's risen from the dead. This realization, memory, shock, amazement, and then belief. It must be true. And so they believe because they remember the words of the Lord. And, you know, that's a clue and a key to the rest of this chapter. Because it will be the words of Jesus and the words of God in Scripture that will make sense of the resurrection. And in a moment, we'll see why that matters so much. So, these women in the tomb that morning, they become the very first believers in the risen Jesus. And then, the apostles become the first unbelievers. Can you see it there in verses 9 to 11? The women hurried to tell Jesus' other followers, and Luke says, they kept on telling them. That's the way Luke puts it. They kept on telling them all these things about the tomb being empty and what they'd heard from the angels, but they did not believe the woman because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Perhaps you don't believe in the resurrection. Well, join the club, the club of those disciples of Jesus himself, the apostles, who were to be the very foundation of the church, all of them, unbelievers, not just doubting Thomas, but every one of them on that first day, until by the end of that day, their lives were changed forever when they actually encountered the one that they could not initially believe had risen from the dead. But why were they so unable to believe? Why was it? Well, Luke says it was because the women's words seemed like nonsense. Now, that's actually a very strong word that Luke uses there. It was used of, you know, frivolous fairy tales, complete humbug. It was used for the delirious ramblings of the very sick with fever or the crazy talk of the insane. Or in this case, what seemed like just, you know, the hysterical, wishful thinking of grief-stricken women. The idea that Jesus had risen from the dead was, in short, unbelievable nonsense. Now, on the one hand, it seemed nonsense to these disciples who, of course, were Jews. And it would likely also have seemed nonsense to Theophilus, who, from his name, was probably a Greek. So let me tell you why it would have made no sense to either. See, many Jews, by the time of Jesus, did believe in the resurrection of the dead, especially the Pharisees, though not the Sadducees. This was a point of great controversy between them. But they believed that the resurrection was something that would only happen at the very end of the age. It would be on the last day when God would bring in his kingdom and the new world would come. 
You remember what Martha said to Jesus when he told her that her dead brother Lazarus would rise again. And Martha answered, yeah, I know. I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the dead at the last day. So, you see, the idea that it had happened already, and for just one man, not for everybody, that didn't make sense. I mean, Jesus, the one that they thought was the Messiah, had just been brutally murdered the day before yesterday. It sure didn't feel like the beginning of some new age that had begun already. So the whole idea of the resurrection having happened now just made no sense in their understanding of God and the world and the future. No, resurrection, that's for the end of the world, not for here and now in this world. And then for Greeks like Theophilus, it would have made even less sense Because they simply believed that there was no such thing as the resurrection of the dead at all, period. I mean, there might be some kind of afterlife for the soul in some shadowy underworld after death, but no resurrection to bodily life in this world. There was a great poet, a Greek poet called Aeschylus, and in one of his plays, one of his tragedies, he has the god Apollo making this unambiguous statement. This is the word of Aeschylus, the words of Apollo, the god. When the dust has soaked up a person's blood, once he is dead, there is no resurrection. There is no resurrection. That was the unquestioned assumption of the whole Greek and classical world at that time. Resurrection simply doesn't happen. So you see, it's not really surprising that what these women were telling about the tomb being empty and what the angel said about Jesus being raised from the dead just seemed like nonsense. It simply didn't make sense to Jews or to Greeks because, you see, it didn't fit into their understanding of things. It didn't square with their assumptions about what can happen or will or won't happen in this world. And see, here's the thing. That's still true today. You cannot make sense of the resurrection if you try to account for it, explain it within the framework of our Western materialistic assumption that this universe we live in is just a a closed system of mechanistic causes and effects in which even God, if he exists, which he probably does not, Even God cannot intervene in any way. So a so-called miraculous event, such as the total reversal of what everybody knows is the irreversible fact of death itself, that just can't occur. And therefore it did not occur. And so you see, if that is your understanding of life, the universe and everything, well then, when those women come along with their excited claim that the crucified Jesus has risen and alive, well, of course, you you might give them a courteous and patronizing listening. I mean, they're women after all, and we should respect their naive religious beliefs. But you'll want to find some other explanation, some spiritual, psychological way of talking about how the teaching and the spirit of Jesus is still with us today. The thought that God raised him, really, physically, bodily, to a whole new dimension of resurrection life, as the Bible says, well, 
No. That simply doesn't fit within your view of what does or doesn't happen, what can or can't happen in this world. It just doesn't fit. And actually, it can't fit. And it shouldn't fit. Because rather than trying to fit the resurrection into our modern, secular understanding of the world, the resurrection challenges that understanding itself. Leslie Newbegin was a missionary bishop from Britain to India for most of his life. And he spent many years in respectful dialogue with Hindu scholars and gurus, seeing how the biblical gospel story affirms a totally different way of understanding the world, and that Jesus Christ and his, de- his death and his resurrection can't simply be you know, bolted on or accommodated within the Hindu religious stories and assumptions. And then he came back to Britain in his later years, and he realized, you see, that the Western Christian church had basically accepted this worldview of modern secular humanism and was trying to make the Christian faith compatible with those assumptions, when instead the biblical gospel challenges those assumptions and tells a different story altogether. And in the case of the resurrection, this is what he said. He said, the simple truth is that the resurrection cannot be accommodated in any way of understanding the world except the one of which it is the starting point. Cannot be accommodated in any way of understanding the world except the one of which it is the starting point. Now, as we saw, the resurrection couldn't be fitted or accommodated into the understanding of the Jews or the Greeks in Jesus' own day, nor can it be accommodated into the modern or postmodern understanding of our world today either. The resurrection only makes sense within the story where it is both the climax of the story so far and the beginning of the story that is yet to come. And that, of course, is the story of the Bible itself. Because, you see, when you make the resurrection the starting point, then it takes us right back to Jesus himself and to his words. Because what exactly did Jesus say? You see it there in verse 7. He said, the Son of Man, himself, of course, must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, must be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Must be. Why must? It's very emphatic. In fact, Jesus says it twice more in this one chapter. So why was it necessary for Jesus to die and to be raised again in victory over death? And the answer is, in order to fulfill the whole story of the Scriptures, as Jesus will explain later in this same chapter and we look at in the next couple of weeks. See, the Bible as a whole tells us the story, the true story, the only story, within which the resurrection of Jesus makes sense. You see, when you take the resurrection as the starting point, you can look in both directions. You can look back to all that God promised before Jesus arrived, or you can look forward to all that the Bible says will be true for our world in the future because Jesus is risen from the dead. 
So, first of all, take the scriptures that Jesus knew, what we now call the Old Testament. Because there we meet the God who created the heavens and the earth. The God who said, let there be light. The God who then created life, life on earth, and gave life to us, human beings made in his own image. God is the author of life. But then, human sin and rebellion and satanic evil brought death into the world, as God warned. And so from Genesis chapter 4 onwards, we, we live under the reign of death. Because however long people may live, the death bell tolls in the end. Then he died, then he died, then he died. But God promised. God promised on the very day that we brought sin and death into the world that he would ultimately crush the serpent's head, as it says in Genesis 3, destroy the very agent of death itself. And then God promised to Abraham that he would bring blessing through his people to all nations on the earth. And in a world that's dominated by death, that could only mean that God will destroy death itself because death afflicts all the nations. And that is exactly what God promised. Listen to these words of the prophet Isaiah, who says, On this mountain, God will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. And now, says Luke, the Lord who had spoken has kept his word, kept his promise. This living God of the scriptures has come among us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, and he has swallowed up death through his own death on the cross and emerged victorious from the grave. So the resurrection, you see, is the end of the reign of death. Death has no more dominion, for Christ crucified is risen from the dead. And so therefore, death for the believer in Christ is but the gateway to eternal life, the sure and certain hope of our own resurrection. Or, as Jesus put it on that day when Martha made that point to him, Jesus said in reply, I am the resurrection and the life. So the one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Death is crushed to death. Life is mine to live, one through your selfless love. This, the power of the cross, Son of God, slain for us, and raised to life for us in accordance with the Scriptures. So can you see then that the resurrection of the Messiah, Jesus, makes perfect sense as the climax and fulfillment of the promises of God in the Old Testament Scriptures? As Paul puts it, what God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us by raising up Jesus from the dead. This is the story, the true story, the only story, in which the resurrection is not only believable, but inevitable. It had to happen, because God said so, and God keeps his promises. And when we start from the resurrection and look in the other direction, into the future, the New Testament tells us that when Jesus rose from the dead, he not only brought an end to the reign of death, he also brought the beginning 
of a new creation, the new creation. The risen Jesus, says the New Testament, is the first fruits, the firstborn, the prototype of all the life that will be ours in our resurrection bodies in the new heaven and the new earth, which Isaiah also promised, and that John saw in his vision in the book of Revelation. You see, that first day, that day that Jesus rose from the dead, was the first day of the whole new world, a new world that is being brought to birth within the womb of this old world that is still groaning in sin and suffering. So you see, that's why the resurrection only makes sense when we recognize that it was an event on the same scale of magnitude as the creation of the universe itself. Unique, unprecedented, inaugural. The resurrection of Christ was the launch pad, the guarantee of a whole new world that only God will bring about. So, can you see my point? Here it is in summary that the resurrection only makes sense in the story of which it is the climax, which is the Bible, and in the world of which it is the beginning, the new creation. So I wonder, as I draw to a close, are you perhaps not yet a Christian believer? You find the story of Easter, the resurrection of Jesus, just a bit too unbelievable, sort of seems like nonsense, just doesn't fit into your understanding of the world, the understanding that surrounds us in our secular culture as assumed truth, well, could I urge you to think again about those assumptions and take some time to consider this alternative worldview that the whole Bible story puts before us with its climax in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And if you still questions, come along to Christianity Explored or Hope Explored and ask your questions and think it through for yourself. But are you a Christian? And yes, you believe in the resurrection. But when you come to explain it, you sort of default into some kind of spiritual, personal, subjective talk about how Jesus lives in me. Jesus means this to me which then leaves the surrounding secular culture and worldview unchallenged. Now, don't get me wrong. Of course, we love the fact that Jesus lives within us and that we have a deep personal relationship with him. That's certainly a wonderful part of Christian experience of the risen Christ. But it's not how the New Testament apostles proclaim the resurrection. When I was a teenager, we used to sing a very lively chorus, which some of you may remember. It goes, he lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me, he talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. <laughs> no, when the apostles were asked how they knew that Jesus was alive, they did not say, he lives within our hearts. See, the Jewish and the Roman authorities would have no problem with that at all. We don't mind Jesus living on in your hearts just so long as he's really dead. No, no. You ask me how I know he lives? Because I believe the promises of God in the scripture. And because I trust 
the eyewitness testimony of those who saw those promises fulfilled, when they saw the risen Jesus with their own eyes, heard and touched and ate with him. (laughs) Well, that doesn't quite fit into the last line of the chorus, but it fits perfectly within the Bible story, the one story, the true story, the only story, within which the resurrection is no longer nonsense, but gospel truth for our salvation. Amen.